This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Peter Foster, author of What Went Wrong with Brexit and What We Can Do About It, published today by Canongate Books. It's been more than three years since Britain withdrew from the European Union, and no one, not even Brexiteers, think it's gone well so far. Defending the cause after yet another Brexit setback last month, the best Matthew Lash from the Institute of Economic Affairs could offer was, quote, Brexit simply means that British representatives can make choices, not that they must point in any particular direction. Ever since the British voted to leave the EU in 2016, millions of words have been written for and against the process. But to my knowledge, Peter Foster's is the first book to assess the scars Brexit has left across the economy and provide a realistic roadmap to improvement. He writes... There is little mileage in relitigating the history of Brexit. As the saying goes, we are where we are. But that does not mean accepting that the UK has to remain in its current state of Brexit purgatory. Since 2020, Peter has been the Financial Times public policy editor and writer of its Britain After Brexit newsletter. Before that, he looked set to be a telegraph lifer as a foreign correspondent based in New Delhi, Beijing and Washington. And crucially for this book, as Europe editor between 2015 and 2020, when he became, along with RTE's Tony Connolly, the indispensable Brexit reporter. Between them, they broke stories, explained this intricate and unprecedented divorce, and along the way, acquired giant Twitter followings. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Tim. In your acknowledgements, you describe this as a, quote, reporter's book. Um, How so? What did you mean by that? You know, what I mean is that I'm not an economist. I'm not a a, a professor of politics. I'm a reporter. I pick the phone up and I talk to people. And I, as you said in your introduction, was a foreign correspondent. I came back from reporting on the rest of the world and the UK's place in the world uh, in India, China and Washington. And I came back to the UK in 2015 and we voted for Brexit. And many of the things that I'd seen in America, you know, the, the world of alternative facts, the kind of populist politics that was roiling Eastern Europe uh, and the US were present in the UK that in a way, frankly, that I hadn't understood. And so Brexit caught me by surprise. I didn't think we were in that place as a country. And so the last seven years, I've been a reporter. I picked the phone up to businesses, to politicians, uh, to people on the ground who are impacted by the biggest decision I think in my lifetime, I'm 50, uh, that we've taken. I'm too young to remember where I was alive when we went into the European Union. You know, the upending of our relationship, uh, political, economic and strategic with our near neighbour, with the European Union. And so, you know, I don't profess to have a crystal ball. I don't profess to have global expertise. But what I have done is spend a lot of time on the phone, on the doorsteps, 
reporting, asking people, you know, what it's done to their business, what it's done to their experience of living and working in Europe, you know, with a capital E. Uh, and uh, that's why it's a reporter's book. Actually, I, that was the thing I found most gripping and most impressive about the book was how real world it is. You, you point out that small businesses were the most damaged by leaving the single market in the customs union. And throughout, you provide case studies of companies like um, Hampstead Tea, Infinity Engineering Services, Apothic 87, LMK Thermosafe. How did you come across all these? Was, was it from, from the FT newsletter or was it when you were at the Telegraph? How, how did you pick them all up? It's a mixture. Sometimes it's people reaching out. Sometimes it's people contact you on Twitter. Sometimes trade associations who are trying to illustrate uh, uh, the troubles caused by Brexit will will uh, connect you with companies. You know, there's just a network of people who are trying to, uh, you know, put in an apples and oranges sort of way a concrete reality on something which for a lot of people is nebulous. Most people don't move things and make things. They consume things. They, they just assume that the supermarkets are full. They don't really understand uh, uh, how this stuff happens. And that's, you know, one of the things about Brexit. None of us really, because it was there like the air was there, understood how the single market operated. And we've had a lesson in that in reverse via Brexit. And so I think, you know, you look at the opinion polls, it's pretty clear sense that people have a sense that it's not gone that well. But they don't often understand why. And so what I've tried to do in the book is sort of crystallize that in a sort of play school through the round window, you know, without being simplistic kind of way so that, you know, people can understand what it means for a business trying to deliver their tea or their engineering services into the European Union, a business trying to grow, a business trying to um, connect with European supply chains, which is, you know, a big part of UK business and industry. It's either directly feeding into European supply chains or reliant upon them because that's our neighbourhood. And so that's why and how I've traced you know, those businesses to try and explain it. I mean, I can't help but ask, how was it writing such balanced copy about the negotiations and about the impacts uh, when you were at the Telegraph for so long? I mean, that must have been contrary to, to the line of most of the people who worked there and certainly higher up in the paper. Yeah, it's an interesting one. You know, the Telegraph, to its credit, printed lots of things that were inconvenient truths about Brexit when I was working there. I worked there for 21 years. I joined it, you know, from the Times where I'd been a trainee because it was the best and the best resourced serious newspaper on Fleet Street. Obviously, all the media, you know, from the BBC to the Guardian, the Telegraph have been sucked into the culture war, you know, which has been obviously the Brexit wars for the most part in the UK. And that has made things tricky. You know, Chris Evans, who was the editor at The Telegraph when, at the time when I was there, still is, to be fair to him, published inconvenient stories, you know, because as an editor, he wanted stories that made a noise, that broke new ground. And so, you know, you know, funny enough, you know, the, the, the sort of secret about the Daily Telegraph is, of course, it's staffed by media professionals aged between 25 and 40. And yes, it, you know, has some very Brexity columnists, but of course, the people working there, you know, demographically, I don't never put them all against the wall and ask them their opinions. But statistically, they wouldn't all be Brexiteers by any means. In fact, you know, I suspect the balance of them were probably Remainers. You structured the book uh, in two parts, what went wrong with Brexit and then what we can do about it. So with part one, what went wrong with Brexit, this might surprise some readers who many will have believed that it never could have gone right. 
But you do identify the first post-referendum phase under Theresa May as the moment when any chance of a minimally destructive Brexit was lost. Can, can you explain? Yeah, so obviously Brexit in some ways was born out of political enmity, wasn't it? You know, it was a feature of a particular brand of sovereignty first uh, uh, conservative thinking that had been there for years. You know, Bill Cash has been railing against the European arrest warrant, etc. You know, it didn't come out the blue. Uh, Yes, it had proximate factors, but it didn't come out the blue. So it was, of course, always a big ask for uh, such a momentous thing with such a slim majority to be refracted through a national conversation. But when Theresa May became Prime Minister, I think there was a slither of hope that a Prime Minister who, as Home Secretary, had stood up to the right of her party on things like the European arrest warrant, had argued actually with Bill Cash that giving away that piece of sovereignty that would see you know, people accused of crimes in Europe, UK citizens being extradited immediately to European courts. She argued that that was a fair trade-off of sovereignty. Unfortunately, you know, when she got into power, she started with a dreadfully muddled speech that completely failed to understand what leaving the single market meant, got the backs of Europe up. And then by promising a whole load of cake and eat it, interpretations of what was possible, that we could still have free trade and we'd be free to strike trade deals all over the world, you know, uh, uh, that in the end, she got forced out of office, but got forced into a place where the right of the party became ascendant, you know, her, her, her single market for goods deal that tried to reconcile the problems with the Irish border, with the need for free trade, uh, with to keep UK trade going. In the end, it was dead on arrival because it had taken her so long to get there. And once she'd lost power in the in the election in 2017, she had the DUP as her political partners. And the thing got narrower, the discussion got narrower and narrower and narrower and became a, a battle, internal battle in the Tory party, which was run by Boris Johnson, who promised the earth to the to the sovereignist right of the party. And that's why we ended up with the Brexit that we did. You don't report on this in the book, but at, at the time from your reporting at the end of 2016 going into 2017 and, and Theresa May's Lancaster House speech, do you have an understanding from behind the scenes about what made her go there? I mean, we're seeing now how strongly Nick Timothy, her, her advisor, her main advisor at the time, felt about the European Union. Maybe some of us didn't know that at the time. Do, do you think he was a main driver of what took her to Lancaster House? The honest truth that that answer is I don't know. I think, you know, from my conversations, the difficulty with Theresa May was she constantly tried to triangulate solutions that were really aimed at resolving political differences inside the UK and constantly failed, despite the best efforts of her officials, to derive solutions that reflected what was negotiable in Brussels. And the result was a lack of confidence and, and a rising frustration in, in, in Brussels, which soured the negotiation, and a series of missteps that ultimately led to her own downfall. I've no doubt that Nick Timothy was behind that failed speech. Um, you know, it wasn't shown to people like Ivan Rogers, for example, uh, who was then the UK ambassador, the permanent representative in, in Brussels. But that was a function of a political outlook that really failed to understand that when we'd voted for Lee to leave, 
we were in a different conversation. We weren't conversing with the European Union, with Brussels authorities, with the European Commission as a member, which, of course, what we've done for the last 35 years, where you cut deals, where you leverage and trade uh, what you want with the other members who will do what is necessary to keep you in the house. And of course, you know, the process Britain over the years got lots of opt-outs. You know, Theresa May as Home Secretary got to opt in to those bits of the Justice and Home Affairs portfolio that she wanted and opt out of other bits. You know, that a la carte approach that still implicitly shot through the Theresa May negotiation or her understanding of what she could negotiate was just failed to internalize what leaving meant, what being an outsider meant, how the European Union were going to deal with the UK at a time when, remember, Donald Trump had just become president uh, of the United States, populist forces were rising, the immigration crisis happened, the EU was in a massive defensive crouch, and the UK was given no quarter. Well, you also make the point in the book that in general, the May, Johnson and Trust governments that managed the Brexit process didn't listen to business, but also that business itself went quiet. And there was, as you put it, a a climate of silence. And from 2016 to 19, I was amazed at how ineffective the supposedly all-powerful business lobbies were. And the, the one that struck me most actually was financial services. How do you explain why there was this basic inability of business to lobby in their interests throughout these negotiations? I think it was it was quite simple, which was the government wasn't interested in listening. Boris Johnson famously said, F business. Yeah. Um, and so then you take a strategic decision. You know, the country split on Brexit, the board split on Brexit, or probably not split, but, you know, the consumers, your customers are split on Brexit. Why stick your head above the parapet when politically the party in power, albeit the party of business as was, has committed itself to a version of Brexit that is frankly non-negotiable. You know, I mean, Michael Goh's famous thing, we've had enough of experts. How do you, how do you remonstrate with a government that has committed itself for ideological reasons to doing a reverse trade deal with its largest market. You know, the same government that is lionising its trade deal with faraway places like New Zealand and Australia, tiny markets 12,000 miles away that will prevent, you know, produce incredibly small, 0.02%, even negative, according to one assessment uh, in in the case of New Zealand, increase in, in, in GDP, while simultaneously doing a reverse trade deal, re-erecting barriers to trade with the market on our doorstep of 450 million people at a cost, depending which forecast you want, but central estimate of about 4% of GDP. That's a massive number for an economy the size of the UK. How do you, how does business negotiate with a government that has convinced itself that 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 is a way for buccaneering Britain to prosper, that Britain outside the EU can deregulate and flourish and be nimbler and quicker outside the EU, apparently ignoring the fact that so much of the UK economy uh, is integrated with the EU and ignoring the fact that business doesn't want separate regulatory environments. I mean, one of the most incredible things is that whole Rees Moggy and Duncan Smith retained EU law bill, let's rip up all EU law, go for your lives, go wild in the aisles, boys, you can deregulate and have whatever you like. It's been met with a deafening silence, hasn't it? You know, there has been no 
radical divergence, et cetera. Why? Because business doesn't want it. And I think, you know, quite quickly, you ended up in really quite, you know, summarized by that infamous Boris Johnson F business quote, where a essentially populist government who'd sold Brexit on a, you know, pretty false prospectus was determined to see it through for its own internal political reasons, at which point I think the business lobbies pretty much gave up. And the ones that did stick their head above the parapet got it shot off most of the time. Well, you say, uh, this is a quote from the book, um, the UK has actually diverged very little from EU rules since Brexit. In many areas, the UK has become a de facto taker of EU rules. No politician wants to admit that their life's work was a waste of time. But do you think that some of them, for example, Kemi Badenoch, who was the one who essentially abandoned the Retain EU Law Act, do you think some of them are realising the fact that what you've described is true, that the the UK cannot diverge meaningfully and and survive as an economy. It's a good question. That you know, you're right. Kemi Badnock did away with the one-year guillotine sunset clause on the retained EU law bill, which promised to review or revoke all EU law. You know, which underpinned vast swathes of British life, commercial, social, environmental, in a year. As the business secretary, she obviously saw sense gravity took over similarly with the uk ce mark you remember um sorry the uk ca mark you know our equivalent of the ce mark the government's pretty much given up on that uh we wait and see what happens with construction and medical devices but all other areas we're accepting the uk ce mark there we are rule taking remember all that stuff about being sovereign equals well we're not sovereign equals when it comes to the size of our trade and the heft of our regulatory uh, orbit. And so there is evidence, I think, that realism is sinking in that you, know, you can say you don't believe in gravity, but if you're still sat on the floor and you're not floating on the ceiling, then I'm afraid gravity exists. And reality is taking over, but only within fairly fixed parameters, because all those macro promises, the headline promises that were made to the electorate still stand, don't they? And, you know, I think politically, it's very difficult, not just for the Tory party, but apparently for the Labour Party to come out and go, well, this hasn't gone very well. Maybe we need to have a rethink. Instead, what you've got is, let's not talk about it too much. If we don't talk about it, maybe it'll, maybe it'll go away politically. Uh, of course, it won't economically. Let's not talk about it. And over time, it'll be fine. We'll just muddle through. Well, maybe. I'm not sure that that's right, but that's definitely seems to be the political strategy. And that's why people like me, you know, have written books like this, because if they won't talk about it, you know, as a strap line, then we all need to. And I think in some ways, the public are maybe even further ahead than Kemi Badnock and the politicians in realising that walling yourself off or furring up the arteries of trade with your largest market on your doorstep is probably not very good for you. I mean, you make a very good point throughout the book, actually, and mostly in the second part about scarring, really about the idea that, yes, there are, and you said, well, we'll come to them later, you talk about some palliative solutions to, to the worst parts of Brexit without actually coming up with proper remedies. But can you explain, so people who haven't read the book, your idea of, of scarring and of the fact that business, just by going along with the lack of change going along with the status quo will be able to adapt to the worst parts of Brexit, but will not be able to uh, prosper. So I think there are two things here about about scarring. The first one is some people say to me, now, how far are we through Brexit or when's it going to be over? 
And I think that's entirely the wrong way to think about it. So businesses might got, have got used to the customs forms. It might have got used to the 27 different VAT regimes. It might have got used to rules of origin, which is you know proving that your good is sufficiently made in the UK to enter the market tariff-free. Particularly biz, big businesses have got used to that. But that suggests that once you've got the hang of all that, you're fine. On you go. Nothing to see here. Well, two important things. The first one is even if you do all of that stuff, you remain at a marginal competitive disadvantage to your competitors inside the single market. So really simply stated, do I want to buy something from you know Peter in Manchester or from Pedro in, in Milan when the stuff from Peter in Manchester comes with a big wad of forms, a load of uncertainty about whether whether it might or might not get stuck in uh, uh, in the uh, in the docks uh, because of uh, uh, border frictions. So that's the first thing: is that even though it's perfectly possible, no one's suggesting it's not possible to trade with Europe. Of course, it's possible to trade with Europe, but if it's marginally more difficult and an equivalent product is available inside the single market that's hassle-free then why not take it from them? And you, when you talk to business, you know what I think of it as a stock and the flow. There was a stock of relationships that existed prior to Brexit. But the tricky thing is going forward, do you win the next contract when your business comes with hassle and business from inside the single market does not? So that's the first thing about scarring. I think the second thing about scarring is that the process of Brexit has been um, really unhelpful to the UK's reputation as a place that um, is reliable, uh, has solid regulatory uh, and a dependable regulatory environment that uh, is conducive to investment. And so what we've seen is a lot of what I call pinball policymaking, the, the, the talk about ripping up all EU law. If you're an investor and you're looking at a 15-year horizon, 20-year horizon for a multi-billion pound investment, how confident can you be that post-Brexit Britain is going to be in a stable regulatory environment? And I suspect that even if Labour wins the next election, those questions are going to continue to hang over a future government as well, because we've seen that the politics of Brexit, the politics of populism that have roiled the United Kingdom, have made the regulatory environment very unstable and unpredictable. Political risk is now a thing. Business confidence with the US has fallen the last three years straight, according to the UK American Chamber surveys. And I think that scarring is tricky. Because it's true that the European regulation was sclerotic, but it came down the pipe from Brussels. We had our inputs, remember, both in the European Parliament and in the European Council and in the European Commission, but it came down the pipe. And once you'd implemented it at a national level, it covered all uh, 28 members of the European Union, 500 million people as then was. And that pipeline is broken. And going forward, there is going to be a continual source of friction, not just with the stuff that I talked about at the beginning, but future regulations, carbon border taxes, supply chain due diligence, plastic packaging, British companies trading into and reliant upon the EU single market for its supplies are going to find ongoing, it's like playing whack-a-mole, ongoing regulatory issues and divergence, even if the UK doesn't, as it hasn't, hasn't, go into a massively different regulatory sphere. We are like an iceberg that carved off the ice sheet, the regulatory ice sheet of the European Union, and we are drifting away inexorably from the EU, and that creates 
border frictions and that creates barriers to trade and that over time makes it harder for the UK to compete. I mean, that over time does a lot of work, doesn't it? Because over time, politically, it doesn't have the same impact as an immediate crisis, for example, like the, the, the Liz Truss bond market crisis last year. And you cite a string of studies showing the negative impact on outputs and goods, but these are over very long periods. Do you think that, I've often wondered, do you think that if the pandemic hadn't happened when it did, that the immediate, very acute impact of a skinny withdrawal agreement might have had an impact politically in the same way that the trust crisis did? I think probably not, actually. What we saw, actually, remember in the before that in the no deal preparation and before Brexit, there was lots of talk that the ports would be backed up and, you know, we'd not have any nothing to eat and we'd all be starving and sorry. I don't think that was ever the case. Actually, I don't think it was ever helpful that it was portrayed in that way because what we actually just saw was that when the uh, European Union imposed its uh, uh, regulatory border as it did when we left after the uh, 2020 trade cooperation agreement was signed, what you actually saw was people just not trading. And it's not critical because business had had done its preparations uh you know the number of trading relationships and trading lines fell quite short sharply but the big businesses had done their preparations so yes it put prices up yes it made it harder to keep shelves stocked at all times but i don't think we'd have had a liz Truss style crisis that suddenly would have made everyone throw their hands up in the air and even if they had what we're going to do, go back and say, can we join please again, six weeks or six months after we'd spent two years absolutely getting up the noses of the Europeans and negotiating a skinny trade deal that, by the way, suits them rather well. You know, they run a surplus in goods. They're perfectly happy. Um, No one is sat awake at night in Paris and Berlin or in Rome worrying about Brexit. I mean, they'd rather that we hadn't gone, I think. And, you know, there are elements that, that are uncomfortable and and unhappy but you know europe is moving on so no is a short answer i don't think and i think you know that the, the boiling of the frog is i think is is the problem here the politicians don't want to talk about it they haven't talked about it you know there's a very good resolution foundation report looking at our advanced manufacturing supply chains you know manufacturing is 50% of uk exports advanced manufacturing it's more reliant on the EU because it plays into European supply chains. It provides higher paying jobs in the Midlands and the North where those jobs are are actually, you know, relatively speaking, most valuable. And so what Brexit does is slowly over time exclude us from those manufacturing supply chains. That doesn't mean that all the factories close and nobody has, an, nobody has any work. It just means that lower product, they're supplanted by lower productivity domestic jobs that pay less well and the country gets poorer as a result now you know nobody lives the counterfactual no one's looking over the fence at the you know the the britain that didn't leave the european union and so my feeling is that you know the politics of this is so tricky that unless something quite dramatic happens and there's some real political leadership the the you know the smart money is probably on you know, the frog being slowly boiled. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the things I'm trying to argue in the book is that, you know, if that's where we are, if there's no political will to really address the reality of leaving the EU and the single market, 
then at least let's have an honest conversation about the cul-de-sac we've backed ourselves into and then decide what we need to do to try and address those problems. And that's about you know land reform and densifying cities and planning reform and it's fixing skills and education and making the UK offer sufficiently strong and resilient and world-beating you know, in the true sense of that phrase, not just the press release version of it, in order for us to prosper. Well, that brings us on to uh, the second part of the book, the what we can do about it part. And you begin there with uh, a description of this meeting in February at Ditchley Park that you were at. Can you tell us more about that, whose idea it was and whether there was any kind of meeting of minds there? So one of the rules of Ditchley is I'm not allowed to tell you what the discussion <laughs> was. It's like but- yeah. But, it, uh, you know, because that's the nature of the beast. Um, you know, what I've written about in the book is what was already in the public domain, which was that two peers, uh, Lord Hill and Lord Mandelson, convened a meeting of Tory and Labour politicians in order to try and begin a discussion, the kind of discussion that I'm trying to open with this book about what we do about Brexit. No one was asked to check their Remain or Brexit credentials in at the door. Can we start to find a way to at least mitigate the consequences of Brexit? I'm not sure, honestly, there was a great meeting of minds. I'm not sure, honestly, there was a great deal of ambition on display. I mean, explicitly in the rubric that was leaked to one of the newspapers, you know, rejoin was off the table. But it was a useful discussion. And and one of the kind of things I say as a result of that discussion was that we can't have a situation, which is what happens as a result of that Ditchley discussion, where, you know, the hardline Brexiteers get to set the parameters of the discussion, where, you know, once it leaked that the meeting had taken place, all the usual suspects came out, David Jones, the ERG, the European Research Group, uh, uh, David Frost, the former chief negotiator who, who negotiated the Brexit deal, Nigel Farage, that, you know, Brexit was being betrayed, you know, that we're all about to make all these constitutional compromises. Well, okay, but what if we were? You know, the public seems pretty clear that Brexit isn't working, the public identifies some of the UK's problems, which aren't all exclusively down to Brexit, but to do with Brexit. So why not have a discussion? We need to be, you know, the point I make from discussion is that the reaction told you everything you needed to know about why we need some political leadership to face down those people who, you know, want to define Brexit as an exercise in pure sovereignty, and that any consequence of it is worth bearing and any questioning of it is Ramona surrender monkey uh, defeatism, doomsterism as Johnson called it we've got to move on you know. and that's the, that was the point and actually the reaction to the news of the discussion itself I think pointed to the fact that we need to move on but that's going to take some political leadership Well one, one thing is going to change quite significantly next year which is that there will be an election and very probably the Labour Party will win it. As you pointed out, Labour has ruled out two obvious fixes to this problem. One is a return to the European Economic Area and the other is forming a customs union with the EU. I'm very struck at how disciplined Tony Blair, Peter Mandelson, David Lammy and co have been despite this uh, hemming in of the Labour project. And again, to put your your reporter's hat on here, do you 
share my suspicion that they've been given some kind of reassurance that this is a temporary fix and that something different would be done in a second Labour term? No, I don't really. Uh, I think um, the primary focus and the defensive posture of the Labour Party is about not upsetting the Red Wall voters who voted for Brexit. And that, I think, is the be-all and end-all of it. I don't think anybody can talk sensibly about second terms. And where they do, that's usually to fob off people who would like the Labour Party to be more proactive in fixing our relationship with the EU. I also think that, you know, one of the dangers about this idea of let's do something in the second term is that if you're not careful, by the time you get to the second term, that's another five, six years from now, there's going to be not that much left to save. You know, relationships have a half-life, Com commercial, diplomatic, etc. relationships have a half-life. I think in five years from now, if you've had five years of deep and serious engagement with the EU, then you may well be close enough to take it to another level. But I don't think you can do nothing in the interim. And what concerns me is that this kind of very defensive, you know, shut down all discussion approach by the uh, Labour Party leadership is doing absolutely nothing to roll the pitch, as it were, for a deeper discussion post-election about what we should do to mend our relationship with the European Union. And, and then, the, you know, the second part of that is the process of moving closer to the EU, which is what the Labour Party is talking about, runs against two, three decades of really quite entrenched British political narrative about being shackled to a corpse, about, you know, federalism, up yours, de laws, uh, uh, you know, that that broad you know, approach to the European Union. Running against the grain of that with no uh, uh, pitch rolling or preparation is going to be very difficult. And I suspect that a hard-pressed, newly elected Labour government with lots to worry about and no money to spend will quite quickly get cold feet once it comes under pressure, particularly if they have a small majority. Um, and I think, you know, that's the the case for trying to reframe the discussion around the economy, around protecting those high-value jobs in the Midlands and the North, uh, needs to start before the election. I don't think it will, but I think it ought to if you're going to lay a platform to try and mitigate some of the worst consequences of the current arrangements, you know, which are, as I suspect, you know, it's clear from the numbers on investment on trade, not at all advantageous to the UK. Um, but, you know, that's not where we are. You do, however, come up with a few pitch rolling ideas, not before the election, but for after the election on the political side, the idea of using the TCA Partnership Council creating European Security Council, raising the profile of the ambassador in Brussels, and then on the economic side, and this would be quite significant, dynamic regulatory alignment, linking carbon pricing, and even this idea of extending the Northern Ireland status to the whole UK. The, well, first of all, can you talk us through at least some of these? And then secondly, wouldn't you agree that that would be quite significant pitch rolling during the first term of a assuming there is going to be a second term of a, of a Labour government. Yes. I mean, you know, what, I, what I've done there, though, some of those things you set out, uh, are, I've done there uh, to, to set out what the possibilities are. I also make very clear that, you know, we were talking earlier, weren't we, about Theresa May, essentially in the UK negotiating with itself. If you want to open the door to these discussions, you need to think really clearly about what is going to get the 
EU to prick up its ears and negotiate with the UK beyond the formal implementation review of the trade agreement, which starts in 2026, which, if the Labour Party is not careful, will just become a very micro little negotiation. Um, you know, the Labour Party said it wants a veterinary agreement, which would reduce some of the worst frictions on, on food and, and plant products. It said or hinted strongly that it wants some kind of mobility agreement to help with musicians and au pairs and people going to do work, you know, seasons uh, in the tourism industry, etc. in the EU. Um, it's talked about mutual recognition of professional qualifications, and there's space for that in the trade and cooperation agreement, but there's similar space for that in the Canadian Canada. We remember, we've got a Canada-style deal. Well, there's a you know provision for that, but, you know, after the Canadians did their deal with the EU, as the only one of those deals they've done is on architects, and that took nine rounds of negotiation. It won't be a uh, you know the kind of crisis negotiation that perhaps people imagine have got used to as a result of No Deal Brexit and and the standoff over Northern Ireland. It will be a grinding, iterative negotiation. So that's why I make the argument that if the Labour Party doesn't want to get bogged down in an itty-bitty, nitty-gritty negotiation, but actually wants to make a difference, then the leader of the government is going to have to be quite ambitious quite early on in seeking to reframe the discussion, to go to the European capitals, to go to Brussels and say, look, I'm not Boris Johnson. We're not David Frost. We do want to talk about the level playing field. We do want to have a deep and serious negotiation. We do want to really reframe the negotiation uh, of the you know or you know that we've had before. Um, but that's going to require leadership. And as we said, you know, there's no pitch rolling for that. If you don't do that, and you just get stuck in an itty bitty negotiation. Then, as someone in the Foreign Office said to me recently, that the, the story of Labour's first term will be the growing disillusionment with Brussels because they won't get very far. Um, you know, the European Union's got other things to worry about. It's got energy crisis, it's got the green transition, uh, it's got, you know, security issues, it's got the accession of Ukraine, all of which, by the way, the UK could offer itself in partnership with. You know, we share the issues about security in Ukraine, we should uh, share our ambitions on net zero. You know, the linking of our carbon price, the UK carbon price is now trading at a pretty significant discount to the EU's, which, you know, could well be seen as a, you know, a measure to undercut or compete with the EU. But actually, we really are all in it together with carbon, you know, actually reducing border frictions by linking our carbon schemes to avoid having to do the carbon border adjustment mechanism. All of that would be good for trade. And it would also, I think, provide the basis for a deeper discussion. If you've done a sort of reverse retained EU law bill, as it were, where you've agreed in primary legislation to dynamically align on a series of areas and sectors, much like the Swiss do, then I think you would be a rule taker. The EU would, in the first instance, go, well, that's gravity, baby. That's what happens when a small country leaves our great block. But it would also reframe the discussion and with the right political leadership and with the right pressure from capitals allow you to start potentially a uh, a different order discussion about the UK's relationship with the EU but you know I'm not saying that that is going to be easy for one second and I think the levels of alignment that are required in the industry would probably want in the first instance, would leave that gov government open to 
accusations of rule taking. No one should think that that road will be easy, either by negotiating with Brussels or politically. But the alternative is to allow the frog to be continue to continue to be boiled, and that's the decision that you know an, an incoming government's going to have to make. Well, here's my final question, and it's related to that. You are sceptical about the idea of the UK returning to the EEA uh, because it would then be clearly a rule taker and this would be politically impossible, especially when it comes to financial services. But with a string of new countries, Ukraine, Moldova, potentially Georgia, the whole of the Western Balkans knocking at the EU's door, isn't it likely that the EU is going to have to be developed and democratised anyway? So EEA relevant law would be negotiated by an EEA council. Would, would that change your mind? Do you think that would be an opportunity or, or is this politically unrealistic? Well, you know, the answer to that question is I don't know. You know, we don't really know another five years of living Brexit. Public opinion in the UK might become more amenable to the kind of rule taking that we're talking about. We've seen Macron recently, haven't we, talking about a Europe of concentric circles. You know, there is going to be a point at which the Ukraine accession begins in earnest with the EU. That itself is going to raise questions about how you govern a multi-speed, multi-ring EU. Um, And, you know, that I think may well, in the fullness of time, create footholds on which you could build a new kind of UK relationship. I think the most important thing is that we stay in the game, that we undo some of the damage that's been done by the Johnson Frost years, particularly. Uh, and, you know, we start to do what we need to do, which is, you know, reframe, rebuild our relations with our neighbour, uh, both sort of structurally and politically, because, you know, we can't sit in the corner forever. Well, to end the conversation, as usual, because this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guests to recommend a couple, one broadly in the same field and a personal choice. So, Peter, what did you choose? Well, the one that's broadly in the same field is a book that I read when I came back from my travels. I spent well over a decade in India, China and Washington. And I came back, you know, having reported on the the beginning of the Trump era, you know, where politicians would sort of give rallies and say, we're going to shut down the IRS, which is like the tax service, and everyone would whoop and holler. And then you go and ask people with your notebook, remember, I'm a reporter, and say, do you think that, you know, if Senator Cruz or somebody was really elected president of the United States, they would shut down the IRS? And they go, well, no, not really, you know. And I used to write kind of columns about that, about how you know, politicians could, you know, lie so brazenly, almost with the connivance of their publics, and what had happened for for us to live in a world of alternative facts. And I thought one of the most brilliant books about that was The Light That Failed, A Reckoning, which was by Ivan Krastev, uh, who's uh, uh, the Viennese, Vienna-based political scientist and journalist, and Stephen Holmes, who was a New York Uh, uh, based uh, political scientist, um, which just looks at how Western liberalism kind of lost the argument after the Cold War, after the financial crisis. You remember that great sort of the end of history and and how that unwound and how um, the disappointment that came after the, you know, the loss of credibility that followed the great financial crisis um, undermined the kind of shtick of Western democracies to a point that, um, you know, 
politicians could knowingly tell lies and get away with it and not not just get away with it because that was sort of you know that the that we'd reached a kind of post-fact world and i think i think that is a, a really sort of eye-opening exposition of you know of why we got there told from the vantage point of the disappointed nations on on, on the east in eastern europe um that you know whose, whose voices often get ignored I, you know it's a book that stayed with me okay thanks and the second book personal choice do you know what i cormac mccarthy died the other uh, a couple of months ago and i reread i did an english english degree at, at university and i reread the road um and the first time i read it i didn't have children you know the road is a kind of post-apocalyptic novel of you know a, a father and son marching to the coast through this sort of ash-strewn landscape and you know i'm 50 now and it's nigh on 30 years since I left university and I don't think I've still read a better book than The Road. Cormac McCarthy's The Road, you know, and now I have children. Having read it post-children, it's even more searing book than it was the first time I read it. So, so you know, completely out the blue and nothing to do with politics, Brexit or anything else, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. So um, today I've been talking to Peter Foster about what went wrong with Brexit and what we can do about it, published today by Canongate Books. Peter, thanks again for coming on. My great pleasure.